Take your Bibles and turn with us, please, to John chapter 1. Thank you, Brother Greg, Brother Warren, Brother Lynn. Sing us right to the feet of Jesus. Hallelujah. Grateful for that. John chapter number 1. I'm interested this morning in Christ's first five. His first five followers. We know them as disciples. We'll later know them as apostles. Christ being the foundation, they being foundation stones, we'll later learn and uh, later on in the New Testament, not in the Gospels. But I'm interested in these first five as we continue our thoughts in the life of Christ. John chapter 1, as you find verse 35, would you stand with us please? We'll read to the end of the chapter. Thank you again for being here this morning. John 1, beginning in verse 35, again the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and saw them following, and saith unto them, What seek ye? They said unto him, Rabbi, which is to say, being interpreted, Master, where dwellest thou? He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when, he, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. The day following, Jesus would go forth into Galilee and findeth Philip and saith unto him, Follow me. Now Philip was of Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip findeth Nathanael and saith unto him, We have found him, of whom Moses in the law and the prophets did write, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said unto him, Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip saith unto him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him, and saith of him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom is no guile. Nathanael saith unto him, Whence knowest thou me? Jesus answered and said unto him, Before that Philip called thee, When thou wast under the fig tree, I saw thee. Nathanael answered and saith unto him, Rabbi, thou art the Son of God, thou art the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said unto him, Because I said unto thee, I saw thee under the fig tree, believest thou? Thou shalt see greater things than these. And he saith unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto you, Hereafter shall you see heaven open, and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Thank you for standing. This is our 18th look into the life of Christ. As we continue our look... um, of course, you know how that we've tried to divide into various sections uh, every few messages. As the sections divide themselves, we've tried to make mention of them. We looked at events uh, leading up to and surrounding the birth of Christ, scenes just beyond the nativity from the young life, very early life of Christ. We considered the silent years of Christ. Then the last three messages, of course, we were moving with him from obscurity 
to public ministry. He's moving from Nazareth uh, out into the open now. And today we enter into a different area of the life of our precious Lord. Uh, We move into the public arena with him to his public ministry. If you remember, we brought two messages. Of course, really it was one message. We just didn't get it preached in one service. But regarding the wilderness scene, some 40 days, there are two 40-day scenes in the life of Christ while here upon the earth. The first we looked at had to do with his being tempted in the wilderness by the devil as he fasted some 40 days and 40 nights. We looked at the account that Luke gave. Now, really, the account stopped at verse 13, but we read for context verses 14 and 15 of that chapter, which says, Jesus returned in the power of the Spirit into Galilee, and there went out a fame of him through all the region round about, and he taught in their synagogues, being glorified of all. And for context, right after Christ is tempted, he then begins his greater Galilean ministry as he steps forth. This brings us to the Gospel of John for this next, chronologically, this next event in the life of Christ. You've heard me say this before. John's target audience is the entire world. Doesn't matter who you are, uh, John wants something. He wants to say something to all of us in his writings. You remember Matthew writing to the Jews. He lets us know the promised one is here. Even in his very first words, he underlines Christ's credentials and giving us his pedigree, his genealogy. And then Mark wants us to know of the great ability of Christ. As he writes to the Romans, they were a busy people. They were an industrious people. And so Mark lets us know of Christ's tireless labor. He's in one scene, and as soon as he's moving from that scene, he's in the middle of another. And he's working. And then Luke wants us to know of the nature and the humanity of Christ. He has more to say about Christ tiring or being weary Uh, whatever the case would be. But John, he wants us to know who he is in his essence, who he really is. He's God of very God. Mark this in your Bible. Turn with me to John chapter number 20. You've heard me say this before. Every book of the Bible has a key verse or set of verses. If you can get your handle, if you can get a handle on what those verses are, it sheds light on every passage in that particular writing. John, in chapter number 20, verses 30 and 31, are your key verses to the book, uh, to, the, to the writing of the book of John, the recording of the book of John. John 20, mark these, underline these, make your notation out beside, key verses of the book of John. And many other signs, this is John 20, verses 30 and 31, and many other signs truly did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. And so John, John wants, John's desire is that a man believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's interesting, John doesn't use the word faith. You'll find the word faith in Matthew, the word faith is in Mark, the word faith is in Luke, but it skips the book of John and goes to the book of Acts, and you'll find the word faith, and you'll find it explained and exposed to you. But John doesn't use the word faith not one time. His word is believe. As a matter of fact, he uses the word believe uh, some 52 times. Another 27 times, it's the word believed, past tense. He used the word believest some three times, 
believeth 17 times, believing another two times for a total of 101 times. That John wants you to believe. If somebody needs to know who Christ is, tell them to read the Gospel of John. If you ever lead somebody to the Lord, tell them to get their feet wet in the book of John and then the book of 1 John for assurance. You learn, you know who Christ is by the time you get through with the 21 chapters of the book of John because he is the Son of God, he is God the Son, and John makes no bones about it. Even the miracles that Christ performed point us to the miracle of salvation itself. Uh, Christ makes all his I am declarations in the book of John, in the gospel of John. The first time he uses the word believes in the first chapter of his writing, verse number 7, the same came for a witness to bear witness of the light that all men through him might believe. That's why we share and give witness to the light, right? His last use of the word believes in chapter 20, verse 31, we just read it. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. Then he uses all these variations of the word believe throughout his 21 chapters. Today, as we take note of the life of Christ, again, we're looking at these first five followers of Christ. We know them to be five of the 12 disciples. They are Andrew, John, Peter, Philip, and Bartholomew. And, of course, John is not mentioned by name in the text itself. It's obvious that the two disciples that are here with John the Baptist is John points at Christ and says, Behold the Lamb of God. Uh, these two, uh, they, they leave following Christ when, uh, when their pastor, I mean, John was their pastor when he pointed. As a matter of fact, let me say this. It's amazing and remarkable to me. John had about six months of ministry, but his influence is still going on today. As a matter of fact, over most of these disciples, even of the 12, John the Baptist had influence on them. If you go to Acts chapter number 19, and, and, or excuse me, Acts chapter 18, and Acts chapter number 19 in Ephesus, all the way into Ephesus, years down the road, they're still talking about John baptizing them, all the way in Ephesus, and in Corinth, the same. It's amazing the influence of John the Baptist, the forerunner of Christ. He preached some six, eight, maybe nine months or so, somewhere along that line, and he's still influencing, he's still impacting lives years and years down the road. Now, it's interesting that Matthew, he's mentioned some five times in the New Testament. Mark's mentioned some five times. Uh, Luke is mentioned some three times, but some 35 times uh, John is mentioned. Do you know he does not mention himself by name until you get to the revelation of Jesus Christ? John is the penman of five of our New Testament books. Uh, The gospel that bears his name. 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, and then Revelation. He refers to himself as that other disciple, or that, um, uh, that disciple whom Jesus loved, or something of the sort. If you want the references, I'll be happy for you to have them. Uh, I've already looked them up. I'll be happy to share them with you at the close of the service. When John is called to follow Christ, he's probably the youngest of all those that were called of the twelve. John probably had more substance to him. He's very contemplative. He studies the situation out. Case in point, just very briefly, is when Jesus rose from the grave. And the ladies come back delivering the news. Uh, You remember John uh, at the the tomb of uh, Jesus. You remember Peter ran in and wants to know where the Lord's at. 
And John stood there looking in, and the Bible says, and John believed. He's very contemplative. He, he contemplative. He considers whatever is before him. John is part of the inner circle of the three. You know who I'm talking about, Peter, James, and John, the inner circle of Christ. The 12 were close to Christ, but Peter, James, and John were the closest. They witnessed things the other nine did not witness. For example, the raising of Jairus' daughter. And then on the mount, when Christ is transfigured, it's a metamorphosis. What's on the inside of him, the Shekinah, beams forth. Peter, James, and John got to witness that. And then you'll remember in Gethsemane, Jesus did not take the 12, but he took three. He took Peter, James, and John. Let me give you just a brief introduction to these five by attaching to their names. There's Andrew. He's one of the first five. He is seemingly insignificant. Andrew's one of those fellows around the church that he gets overlooked, but it doesn't bother him. He is not insignificant at all. As a matter of fact, he's involved in the greatest business at all in all of the world. And then there is John. He's the disciple whom Jesus loved, as we mentioned a little bit ago. As a matter of fact, the Lord Jesus had so much confidence in John and loved John so that while he hung from the cross of Calvary, he committed the care of his own mother into the, into the hands of John. And then Peter. There's Peter. What a character Simon Peter is. Um, he's the fellow that is consistently inconsistent in the Gospels. There's hope for all of us, friend. But we could say that when we look at our own selves, right? That he doesn't give up on us. Uh, he's uh, consistently inconsistent. And yet our gracious Lord has plans for Simon Peter's life. As a matter of fact, he has big plans for Peter's life, doesn't he? Great big plans for him. He's going to use them in a marvelous way. There is Philip. Philip is the reluctant disciple. Um, but he did share his faith with his friend. As a matter of fact, his friend, he's paired with him throughout the four Gospels. When it came to feeding the multitude, I'll refer to this again in John chapter number 6. Jesus put Philip to the test. He said, what about feeding all these? There were 5,000 men besides women and children. Well, what he did was he got to counting heads, and then he got to counting the cost. And he said, I just can't make it work. I can't make it work on paper. And he failed his test. Anytime when you're serving God, you can't work it out on paper. You can't run it like you run a jailhouse. You can't run it like you run a military outfit. You can't run it like you take care of your bank business. I mean, you, when it comes to God, you can't outgive him. You can't outserve him. You can't do and explain him. You can't get a handle on him when you try to describe him. He gets out of your, out of your hands and out of your vocabulary. I mean, he operates on a different plane. Somebody say amen right there. Then there is Nathaniel. Nathaniel's the disciple who was not a phony. Jesus said of him, we'll say something about him here in just a moment. He says, in whom uh, I, there is no guile. Nathaniel's a guy that could and would speak his mind. Ask him, and he'll tell you exactly what he assesses uh, on the scene. He's open and he's very honest. Look with me, Will. Uh, notice, first of all, Andrew and John as they follow Jesus. Verses 35 to 39. Notice with me, first of all, verse 36, where John, uh, John the Baptist, that is, John the Baptizer, the forerunner to Christ, he makes his declaration. Verse number 36, and looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. Now we know this is at least 40 days after, when he says this, uh, this is at least some 40 days after his baptism. 
as, uh, as Jesus has been tempted. And uh, here he's come forth and he's walking by John. Andrew and, and John the Apostle, they are standing there with, uh, with John the Baptist. And when John sees him, he points at him and he says, Behold, look upon him, gaze upon him, look intently, behold the Lamb of God. Uh, that's uh, what he says. Notice with me, 35 through 37, the two disciples of John the Baptist, they, they followed Jesus. 35 to 37, again the next day after, John stood and two of his disciples. And looking upon Jesus as he walked, he saith, Behold the Lamb of God. And the two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. I love this. These two men, they hear John, and they follow Jesus. That is, dear heart, the whole objective of any preacher is, is to preach to men, women, boys, and girls, and they come to Christ, and then after coming to Christ, that they follow Christ. That's the whole objective. That's why we're here today. We, we are, some of us on our journey, following Christ. And if you don't know him, we invite you to come know him. We want to present him to you, that you will come to know him and that you will follow on as well. Then verse number 40, again, we're given the name of Andrew. The Bible says one of the two which heard John speak and followed him was, here he is, was Andrew, Simon, Peter's brother. And then the other of the two is not named, but we do know, we do know that it is John. As a matter of fact, he's the penman of this gospel. You'll find in verse number 39, they're going to follow Jesus to his home. And in verse number 39, the Bible says, He saith unto them, Come and see. They ask him in 38, Where do you live? Where, do you, where are you at? Where do you live? Verse 39, He saith unto them, Come and see. They came and saw where he dwelt and abode with them that day, for it was about the tenth hour. We begin our calendar day at midnight. We close our calendar day at midnight. From midnight to midnight in our society, that justifies, that makes up the day. On the Jewish calendar, they start at 6 a.m. 6 a.m. to 6 a.m. the next day. That makes a day and a night, or a night and a day. It's interesting, the wording and, and the customs of the Jews, right? Even in the first, uh, even in the first chapter of the book of Genesis, talking about creation, and, and, uh, and so-and-so happened on the first day, and the second day, we understand now the Hebrew, it, it literally says growing darker, growing lighter, and it justifies the day. If uh, this being the 10th hour means it's 4 in the afternoon when they get to his house. And uh, it's too far to turn around and go back. And so they abide with him. They stay with him. Uh, can you imagine what uh, dialogue must have taken place? Can you imagine what questions? Wouldn't you like to go home with Jesus and ask him some things? Wouldn't you like for him to settle some things about your faith for you? Wouldn't you like to ask him some things about prophecy or ask him some things about the process of sanctification or what the Holy Spirit does in the life of a believer. Andrew and John follow Jesus. Notice with me, if you will, that Andrew will find his brother Simon and bring him to Jesus, verses 40 through 42. Uh, notice with me these verses. The Bible says, One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus, and when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Andrew finds his brother Simon and brings him to Jesus. I want to say just a word, if I may, about Andrew, and then a word about Simon. First of all, a word about Andrew. Again, he is seemingly insignificant, not much made of him in his conversion, 
uh, in his call to serve Christ, just not much made about, si- uh, or about Andrew, excuse me. Andrew's the kind of fellow that often gets overlooked. But again, he's in the greatest business at all. He's in the business of bringing people to Jesus. First of all, he brings his brother Simon uh, to Jesus. I've often heard people say, we know, preacher, the hardest people for me to witness to is my own family because I know them. The truth of the matter is it's hard to witness to our own family, not because we know them, but they probably know us. And uh, that inconsistency or inconsistencies in our lives it makes it hard to witness to family and a friend. But it did not stop Andrew at all. He goes straight for his brother, Simon Peter. Not only that, but in John chapter number 6, you'll find that it was Andrew that brought the little lad with his lunch to Jesus, and the lunch would be used for the feeding of the 5,000. It's Andrew that brings the boy to Christ, and Christ takes his lunch of fishes and loaves of bread. He blesses it, he breaks it, He has the disciples to have the people sit down in companies of hundreds and fifties and tens. And and, and the more he blessed, the more it was. But it was Andrew that brought the little lad, the little young boy, to Jesus. In John chapter number 12, there's a group of Greeks that show up on the scene. Some tried to forbid them from getting close. But it's Andrew that brings them to Christ. They were outsiders. As a matter of fact, the Greeks were considered by the Jews to be barbaric people. Barbarians is what they were. Sinners is how they were looked upon. Of course, Andrew knew what to do with a sinner. You bring a sinner to Jesus. Tradition holds that Luke, uh, in that particular chapter that I referred to, the beloved physician Luke, he was a Greek that was in that crowd that day that came to Christ. On each of the three occasions, it was just as natural for Andrew, just as natural as could be for Andrew to bring his brother to Jesus, to bring the little boy to Jesus, and to bring the whole band of Greeks to Jesus that day is just as natural as it could be for Andrew. Have you ever noticed some people are gifted in that area? Brother Curtis Gibson that will come up. I wish you could see him. Sometimes when you go to a restaurant with him eating breakfast or supper or somewhere in between, I'm telling you, they'll come to the table and he'll say, how are you doing? He looks like you swallowed the sunshine. He'll say, how are you doing? And they'll, uh, they'll tell how they're doing. He'll say, well, where are you from? What's your name? How old are you? And and then he'll let, he'll let the waitress go on. Well, she'll come back and, and he'll ask for directions. He'll say, can you give me some directions? I'm not from this area. And, and she, in a kind way, will say, well, sure, if I can, I'll give you some directions. And he'll ask, can you tell me how to get to heaven? Do you know how to get to heaven? Can you tell me how to get Are you going to heaven? I'm telling you before it's all said and done. Either that waitress is going to tell you she knows Christ, has been born again, that Christ is the only Savior. Brother Curtis has got that about him. And I mean, he never meets a stranger. We put him up at the Holiday Inn Express probably about 20 years ago. I walked in. He was standing there at the counter trying to win the girl behind the counter to Christ. You see, it's just as organic for Andrew. It's just as natural for Andrew. Don't you wish we'd see a revival of winning of souls? Something that is not forced where you try to wrap somebody's arm up behind their back and force them to do something, but, but out of the overflow of the heart of worship. You understand what I'm doing today is not preaching, it's worship. This is coming from my overflow this week of walking with Christ and praying and talking to God. Did you know that, that it ought to be just as natural for a child of God to tell somebody else about Jesus? You say, what do I tell them? Tell them what is said in the text. Come and see. 
Come to church with me. And let me tell you about the one who died for your sins. Where will you spend eternity? Y'all remember in our missions conference when we told about the little man from Australia and on George Street, how that unbeknownst to him, he had passed out tracts and asked God to give him 10 people to pass a tract out to. He would hand a tract and ask, can I ask you a question, sir? If you were to die today, do you know where you would spend eternity? And there were scores of people down the road wound up crisscrossing and had talked about and given their testimony in churches all over this globe because of a little man on George Street over in Sydney, Australia that kept asking people, providing them the answer in the track, kept asking people, do you know where you would spend eternity? If you die today, will you go to heaven or will you go to hell? May I ask you a very personal question? When is the last time you shared the gospel? I'm not asking you, when's the last time you complained about uh, about when you stumped your toe? Or complained about why they wait so long to shoot the uh, balloon down? I wish they'd have run that thing over Redneck, Mississippi. Somebody had figured a way to get that thing down. Uh, but, but I'm asking you, when is the last time you looked upon your neighbor or your sister or your brother or your mother or your father and asked them, do you know where you're going to spend eternity Will you spend eternity in heaven or in hell? Everybody in Pontiac County, of course, has been saved, right? Everybody, at least three or four times. And everybody in Pontiac County, Don Smith says he's got a grandmother. It used to be a holiness preacher somewhere, too, in the county. Andrew. Listen to Psalm 126, verses 5 and 6. They that sow in tears shall reap in joy. He that goeth forth and weepeth, you've got to have a burden. That's what causes tears. To flow and course down your cheeks. He that goeth forth and weepeth, bearing precious seed, shall doubtless come again with rejoicing, bringing his sheaves with him. I read the story many years back of Peter Joshua. He was an unemployed actor in London, England. He was homeless. At night, he slept on the streets, and at daytime, he begged for uh, handouts, and people would give money to him so that he could get something to eat. I've been to Hyde Park. If you were in Hyde Park, of course, there's six hours ahead of us. But if you ever go to Hyde Park, you can get up. You can bring your own soapbox. You can turn it up. You can get on it. It doesn't matter what you are. If you're a Christian, if you're a baseball player, if you're a Muslim, it don't matter who you are. They'll give you, it's either 20 minutes or 30 minutes. It's been that way for scores of years. Nobody will bother you. There'll be bobbies there. We call them policemen, lawmen here in the States. And those bobbies are there to patrol to see that everybody can spread their propaganda, whatever it may be. May not be anybody there to listen to them, but at least they can do so. Peter Joshua, one, uh, one Lord's Day, he rolled over on the, uh, on the street and he saw this little Salvation Army girl with her little, uh, with her little, little wooden box. And he thought, well, she's going to get up and read, the, read or quote poetry. And so he decides she has no audience, he would be her audience. Uh, but it wasn't poetry she was there to recite. She turned her box over, and about that time, he's standing before her, and she begins to sing a hymn, and the hymn that she's singing, uh, it shows the worthlessness of the glories of this world in comparison to the glories of Christ. Joshua would later testify that the little girl, when she finished singing, said she looked up above him while she was singing, then she quoted three or four verses, looked him in the eye, and said she never said goodbye, hello, or anything, said she picked up her little, uh, little wooden box and walked off. Peter Joshua was saved that day, saved by the grace of God. God had a plan for his life. 
Some years later in Soldier's Field, in Soldier's Stadium in Chicago, Illinois, there'd be a sunrise service. Some 70,000 made their way into that stadium for the resurrection celebration of our blessed Lord. The featured speaker that day was Dr. Peter Joshua, evangelist and pastor. You never know. If you'll do what Andrew says, if, if you'll go and if you'll do what he does, go and share the good news. You don't know. You might see someone saved by the grace of God. Let me say about Andrew, he's a very humble servant for Christ. He knew his place. Can I say it like that? He knew where he fit and he knew where he didn't fit. And I'm going to tell you, it'd be a happy day for a lot of people wasting their lives if you could figure out who you are and where you fit and quit trying to fit in where you don't fit. I had a conversation with a young person many months back about that very thing. You know, there's some areas and places in life I don't fit. Even in the ministry, I'm not going to try to make myself fit. I'm not going to advertise myself. They're just some places you belong, and they're some places you just don't belong. And I could say a lot more about that. Andrew is one of these ordinary Christians. Griffith Thomas had this to say about him. Griffith Thomas said, Andrew's the type of the ordinary Christian. He is not accredited with possession of any extraordinary abilities. And that's the absolute truth. Even as we meet him in verse number 40, notice this with me. He stands in his brother's shadow. He did all of his life, I suppose, and all of his ministry. Look at verse number 40. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew. Watch this. Simon Peter's brother. He had learned the art of contentment. Paul would write about it in 1 Timothy 6, 6, where he said, but godliness with contentment is great gain. Philippians 4, 11, Paul would write, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have learned in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. Consider the conversion of Simon Peter, Andrew's brother. Andrew had no idea when he brought his brother to Christ as to how God would use him. Some have referred to Peter as the father of Pentecost. And if he is, that makes Andrew the grandfather of Pentecost. You see, Andrew's not like Peter. He's not going to stand before thousands and thousands be saved. That's just not Andrew. And Andrew's not going to write a portion of Scripture. That's just not Andrew. But his convert can do it. And uh, he's not the one that supplied for the meal that day, for the feeding of the 5,000. But he brought the fellow that would uh, bring the supplies with him. Uh, You see, you never know who you might uh, win to the Lord and what God may do with that individual. We've all heard the name of D.L. Moody. I mean, shook two continents for the glory of God as a traveling evangelist. Left Moody Bible Institute, which is still up and thriving in Chicago, Illinois. Now, I'm telling you, we all know D.L. Moody's name. But none of us can call the name of the, of the Sunday school teacher that went to the shoe shop the day that, that uh, he witnessed to D.L. Moody and won him to Christ. We don't know his name. All over the globe, the Prince of Preachers. That's what he's still called to this day, Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Uh, we, we all hear his name. I quote him from time to time, Brother Chris. Uh, he quotes him in his scripture reading quite often. Uh, he pastored the first what the world would know to be a mega church, I suppose. Preached to 6,000 every Sunday, sometimes on On the Lord's Day morning, he'd ask his own people. There'd be people still in the streets. He'd ask his own people to dismiss themselves and let the other people come in and have a seat and come back, and he would preach to them on that evening. And and when he was saved, I believe he was 16 years old, the weather was so bad he couldn't get to his own church, so he ducked in a little Methodist church. And in that Methodist church, the pastor couldn't even get there. There was a layman, and the church got up and read from Isaiah 
look, un, uh, uh, look unto the ends of the earth and live. And for Spurgeon's uh, look that morning, I tell you, God granted eternal life. Nobody knows the Methodist church member's name that read from Isaiah that day. It doesn't matter what your name is. It does not matter what my name is. What do you figure we could get done for Christ if nobody was trying to get the credit for it? If nobody was looking for a pat on the back? If nobody's looking for a handshake? If nobody had to have their name in the bulletin? If nobody expected their name on the sign out front? I mean, if we just showed up and we're like a blender around here, like a mixer, put a bunch of items, doesn't matter the color or texture, that all comes out looking the same. As a matter of fact, you know if somebody got me, they ought to have to get every one of you. And if somebody got you, they ought to have to get the rest of us. That's just the way it ought to be. When you leave the Gospels and get into the book of Acts, the key phrase is, with one accord. And may we stay and be of one accord in this church. Consider the company of the inner circle that I mentioned. I'm talking about Andrew still. He's a humble servant. It's amazing to me. You'll find the listing of the disciples in Matthew 10. In Mark chapter number 3, in Luke chapter number 6, and in Acts chapter number 1, the top three. Now, Peter always heads the list, and then Judas always brings up the rear. That's by design. Number 2 and number 3 will be shuffled at times, but Andrew's always number 4. I mean, he made it to the top four, but he made it, never made it to the top three. When they were laughing Christ to scorn when he put them out of the house and he raised Jairus' daughter, all he could do was hear about it. He didn't get to go see. When they came back off the mountain and spoke of how, how Christ Shekinah beamed forth and Moses and Elijah was preparing him for his exodus, uh, why, Andrew, he didn't get to see that. When they went into, into Gethsemane, the, uh, the wine press of of Israel. When he goes into Gethsemane, I know they fell asleep on him, but at least they got to go. There must have been blood stains on our Lord as his sweat became great drops of blood. Andrew did not get to be a part of that. But you know, he never complains in scripture. Not one time does he ask the Lord, why'd you leave me out? Why'd you pick those other fellas? Why are you using them in that way? And you're not pleased to use me in that way? Let me say a word about Simon, if I may. A word about Simon. You say, what you're looking at, you watch for. No reason at all. I got nowhere to be till after a while. Let me say a word about Simon in verses 40 through 42. One of the two which heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first findeth his own brother Simon and saith unto him, We have found the Messiah, which is being interpreted the Christ. And he brought him to Jesus. And when Jesus beheld him, he said, Thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone, Simon Peter. Peter is the most well-known of all the twelve. He's so well-known and so commonly spoken of. We've got our little jokes and puns. We tell about Simon Peter sitting at the pearly gates and figuring out by looking at the register whether somebody ought to come in or not. Of course, those are just funnies. You know that. If anything's going on in the Gospels, Peter's right in the middle of it. Simon's right in the middle of it. He speaks more often intimately with Christ, and Christ has more to say to Peter than any of the other uh, disciples. Now, I want you to notice with me two particulars here about Simon. Number one, Jesus sees him, and number two, he says something to him. First of all, he sees him. Verse number 42 says, and when Jesus beheld him. Now, here he comes with his brother Andrew, and the Bible says, and when Jesus beheld him. He looked at Simon. He's a mess. I'll say more about that in a moment. And yet Jesus loved him. He loved him warts and all, as Cromwell would say. He loved him. He loves the sinner. 
that will come to him. You want me to tell you the happiest day of my life? I, I believe what my pastor was saying before I belonged to the church about sinners going to hell and about Christ going to the cross and about the tomb being empty and Jesus seated at the right hand of the Father. I believed that every time he said Jesus loved the world, I believe. But I'm going to tell you one happy night on a Friday in February of 1990, I realized for the first time he died for me. He loved me, warts and all. He would take me, he would receive me just like I am. And if you are here today, he'll take you too. If he knocks, I tell you, I'd go to the door and answer is what I'd do. And, uh, but uh, you say what you want to. But Simon, that old boy was messed up is what he was. He had a lot of in- uh, inconsistencies in his life. Jesus sees him. He looks upon him. Can you see those eyes looking upon Simon as he approaches? Now, he sees him. Then he says something to him. First of all, he says, I know who you are. He says, I know exactly who you are. He said, thou art Simon, the son of Jonah. Jonah's the equivalent to John. His daddy's name was Jonah. His daddy's name was John. It was a common name in that day. And he said, I I know who you are. You're impulsive, to say the least. I know who you are. You're unstable. You're unsteady. You're hot and you're cold. You're up and you're down. You're in, you're out. You're off and you're on. I know who you are, Simon. Matter of fact, probably in saying, thou art Simon, Simon probably gets it. He's saying, Simon, you are your biggest problem. You get in your way. He says, I know who you are. Think about Simon with me. He could soar to great heights and then sink to great lows. He could say some of the most wonderful things. But then again, he knew how to cuss, did he not? He gave up everything to follow Jesus. Then he turned his back on him and left him, walked away. He confessed Christ at Caesarea Philippi. And then he denied him publicly outside the high priest's home. At one time, he's ready to fight for Christ. And right on the heels of that, he turns around and follows him afar off. Simon is unsteady. Again, he's consistently inconsistent. He said, I know who you are. But then he said... Something very marvelous. He said, I know who you are to be, Simon. Listen to what he says in verse 42. Thou shalt be called Cephas, which is by interpretation a stone. Two things. He changes his name. He changes his nature. Changes his name. He said, thou art Simon. You're headstrong, heady, proud, loud, impulsive, unstable. You got trouble with your mouth. Simon, I know who you are. But he said, I also know who I'm going to make you into being. He said, thou shalt be called. He said, in time to come, thou shalt be called Cephas, which is a rock. Speaks of stability, firmness, strength, consistency, dependability, and faithfulness. J.C. Ryle said he had to change his name, knowing that he would change his nature. He said, the changing of his name signifies the change grace is to work in Simon's life. Simon's like us. He was lacking in many areas of his life. You ever wondered why God doesn't give up on you? Am I the only one? I've wondered that at times. Lord, why don't you just call me home? I get weary like you get weary. And uh, I I said to you here recently, I've been in a battle. When I surrendered to preach, the, the battle was on. And I've been in a battle of some kind ever since. I think about every day of my life ever since. 
As a matter of fact, there are two preachers that are somewhat crossed up with one another, two different sets of preachers, and they, if I called all four of them's names, you would know them. And there's a fellow likes to dig that's in the ministry. He knows everybody's business, but you won't ever find out any of his. And we spoke about an hour and a half one Thursday night late. And he dug and he dug and he dug. And I said, I ain't, I ain't getting between them. I love both of them. If one of them decides to drop me, that's fine. But I'm not dropping. I love both of them. Did you know good men can disagree? Paul and Barnabas did. You remember that? There was no small contention between them. Somewhere down the road, after they split company, their fellowship uh, was renewed somewhere down the road. We don't have to get in the middle of everybody's business and choose sides. Good men do disagree at times. I'm going to get off that stuff. What made the difference in Peter's life? It's what we've heard about all morning around here. Grace, brother. Grace, sister. God's good grace. <laughs> I don't know at the times I look around in my life and think, Lord, where you brought me from? I mean, man, when he changed me, he radically turned me around. And that's attributed to the grace of God. I'm going to close with that this morning. Alan Redpath. It was Alan Redpath that's been credited with the saying, that the saving of a soul is the miracle of a moment. But the manufacture of a saint is the process of a lifetime. I'm glad God receives sinners. He receives ordinary sinners. We'll finish this next week, the Lord willing. But I was, uh, I was thinking about before I left my study to get ready to come to church this morning. Um, some of you may, Jay, you may know the name. Um, Johnny, your wives and children may, may know the gentleman. I fell in love with him sometime back out in Taylorsville, North Carolina, Larry Childress. Larry Childress was uh, he was a small-billed man. He and his wife um, um, were just always at, at Calvary. The, the times I've preached at Calvary, there were Brother Dagenhart pastors. Um, they had three sets of pews. Brother Larry and his wife would be seated a little further back than where Hunter and Morgan are, Brother Larry in the aisle. As far as I'm concerned, he paid me one of the biggest compliments I've ever had preaching out in that area. It was in their church, first revival I preached four years ago or five years ago. I saw him. He had made an impression on me years ago at the, at the, uh, the camp meeting out there. To see him before he got seated. He was frail. Some of you that may remember him where we sit in the Taylorsville camp meeting. He sat up and to the left, just right under the tabernacle. As a matter of fact, there were some that would bring a car up and help Brother Larry and his wife get to their seat. And then when it was time to break and go to the dining hall, they would take him and his wife home. He's already wore out. Anytime I'd pass by, I tried to make it a point to stop and speak. First time I preached there. He'd come up. I'd preached in the camp meeting a number of times. But I walked over to him. I was going to sit back over here about where Brother John and them are. And so I saw him. I kind of went back and around come down. And I said, Brother Laird, just wanted to speak to you. Saw you making your way into the church. And he said, when the preacher got to announcing that you were going to be here, I felt like I'd get a blessing. And I didn't want to miss anything. And I'm telling you, he and I were big buddies. 
And I loved him. Last time I preached for Brother Steve in October last year, we were sitting down at one of the diners, and we were looking out across the foothills. And I said, you know, that's beautiful. The leaves are changing. They blaze orange and yellow and brown, and some had fallen. Some had. I said, isn't that that's just beautiful across there? He said, if you think that's something, I'm going to take you out by Poplar, Poplar Springs Baptist Church. He said, I'm going to take you out by Poplar. I'm going to show you some sights and some pretty deep hollers in these foothills up here. So he took me through, and we just looked at the scenery and talked among ourselves. And then as we were coming back out to the main drag through Taylorsville there, he's going to bring me back to the house I was staying in there on the campground and let me rest until the evening service. We were coming out of that back road, and he said, Now, that's where Brother Larry and his wife lives. I'm going to tell you something. It was an old rent house. You could take a cat and throw it through the window or door. I said, now, that's where he lives. That's where he lives. And he said, yep, been living there for years. I said, let me ask you something, Brother Steve. What's he done all of his life? He said, why, well, he's working these little factories around here. I said, never made much of a wage. He said, no. He said, he said him nor his wife ever made much of, a, of any wage. And I'm going to tell you, church, it tore my heart out when I saw what he lived in. He said, let me tell you something about Brother Larry. He said, when they first visited our church and they got on the inside, he said, our church looks bigger when you get on the inside than it does from the outside. He said, he looked around at our building. He thought, I'm in the wrong place, but he done got set down. And said, here in a little bit, said, two or three got to testify, and then the altar filled up. Said, then more got to testify, and said, we got to sing it again. Said, then folk got to come to the altar again. And he said, for it's all over with. Said, he was right at home. Said, he and his wife never did leave. Let me tell you what that old man could do. He could walk in. You knew he bumped into God somewhere. He'd go to praying in the prayer circle or in the prayer room, which is off their sanctuary right over here, first room to the left. That old man go to calling on God, and son, I'm telling you, it sounded like a blue tick hound coming up on a cold morning running something. Knew something about God. Lived in a little old shack about all it was. Never had two cents, probably. Did, probably didn't have anything saved. Probably didn't make enough to save anything. But I'm going to tell you what he had a whole lot of. He had a whole lot of God. And that's the way it is with these disciples. God takes common, ordinary people. And touches their lives and changes them. Touches their lives and affects other lives. Donald, I'm not trying to play off your emotion nor where you're seated today. But you've got a daddy that has touched a lot of people. He passed that down to you. And now you and your dear wife are touching multitudes of people. You've got a big old strapping boy back up yonder in that sound booth. He has the same heart to do the same. May we submit ourselves unto the Lord and ask him to use us. Make ourselves available to him. Father, will you take these few words? These scattered thoughts. Add your blessing, I pray in Jesus' name. And for his name's sake, I pray. Would you stand, please?